together in the presence of the Lord. That's what the tabernacle represented in the Old Covenant, just as the church does today. In the New Covenant, the place of God's presence and the place of the means of grace. Uh, Exodus 25 is the sermon text. And hear the word of God. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they may bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly. With his heart you shall take my offering, and this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, and bronze, purple, uh, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ramskins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and uh, for the sweet incense, oxen, stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings just so you shall make it and they shall make an ark of acacia wood two and a half cubits shall be its length a cubit and a half its width and a cubit and a half its height and you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out you shall overlay it and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall not uh, or shall be in the rings of the ark. Uh, they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat and the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above the covering, the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another, and the faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, and from between the two cherubim, which are... On the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in uh, commandment to the children of Israel. You shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make for it a frame of a handbreadth all around and you shall make of gold molding for the frame all around and you shall make for for its four rings of gold uh, and put the rings on the four corners that are at its four legs the rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table and you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold that the table may be carried with them you shall make its dishes its pans its pitchers its bowls for pouring and you shall make them of pure gold. 
and you shall and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work, its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornament, ornamental knobs. And flowers shall be of one piece and six branches shall come out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out of the one side and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece. All of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it and its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold and it shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, uh, as we find these details here, the very details which the writer to the Hebrews said that he didn't have time to go into, at least not in writing his letter, which was more like a sermon, well, if we were to summarize Exodus like the writer of the Hebrews did, we would say the same thing. But we're not summarizing Exodus. We're considering it in its details. And we look forward to that, Lord, now and ask that you might bring out all of its symbolism and all of its typology for us to consider together and to see a fitting picture of what it, what it indeed represents. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said last time in Exodus 24... Moses goes up the mountain the second time after the giving of the Ten Commandments. The first time he went up, he received the judgments, uh, which were uh, social laws in essence, social and civil laws. But at, at the second time, uh, Moses goes on the mountain into the cloud of glory. Uh, he reveals to him uh, the, the ceremonial law, in essence, the tabernacle, the priesthood, uh, the sacrifices, and so forth. And so Moses was on the mountain. He went into the into the midst of the glory of God, so to speak, on the mountain. Matthew Henry suggests that Moses likely saw much more there than he recorded for us. And I, I think Henry uh, says that rightly. He beheld glorious things that he was unable to record and to share with the people. But what he did record was what it was the Lord wanted him to tell the people specifically in chapter 25 with respect to the building and furnishing of the tabernacle. Of course, not limited to 25, but uh, but beginning there, the tabernacle, as we begin to consider that structure, uh, let me just say uh, in uh, the beginning here by uh, way of introduction, was unlike the later temple in Jerusalem, an impermanent fixture or structure. It was like a tent that the people would carry around with them. And we even see with the table and the ark that there were provisions made for literally picking these things up and carrying them. The poles and the rings that went through the poles, people would pick them up and carry. The whole impression that we have here is that these things were meant uh, to be used on the go. Now, this was an important feature of the church's existence in those days. 
For she existed not as a permanent settlement or nation, but as a pilgrim people still on the way to the promised land. And thus Israel at this moment, just as Abraham in his history, becomes a picture or a type of the church today. Not settled in the promised land, which was a type of heaven, but uh, but wandering, uh, as it were, through the wilderness, or, or they're not yet wandering, so that would be the wrong thing to say, but journeying through the wilderness with purpose to the promised land. And this is precisely the point of correspondence that we find in the book of Hebrews, speaking of us like Israel here as a people, a pilgrim people on the way. And thus uh, the church's existence Uh, much like Israel here, as exhibited in the tabernacle, is one of impermanence and an unsettled nature. We are sojourners or pilgrims passing through looking for something better. And so the tabernacle, which was a tent, was, was suited to this purpose. However, as we know, once Israel becomes settled in the land, the tabernacle gives way to the temple, which was a permanent structure, until, of course, it was destroyed and then rebuilt and then destroyed again. And so perhaps the temple wasn't so permanent after all. Perhaps maybe we could say it was more like the tabernacle. Neither of those structures were meant to abide. But the purpose of the tabernacle was the same as the temple. As we saw last time in the tabernacle, God dwelt with the people. And uh, what that meant specifically will become clear when we consider what was actually found in the tabernacle, the furnishings. It was called a sanctuary, verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary. That is a place for God to dwell. A holy place where the people met with God. But as Matthew Henry also says, the tabernacle was as yet a mere idea. It was something God was revealing to Moses, but that's all it was. It had yet to come into existence. And the two things Moses needed at this moment uh, were the materials and the model. And that is exactly what the Lord gives him here. Instructions concerning the materials, the collection of the materials, and then the model by which he is uh, to construct the tabernacle. We should also remember, as I said last time at the close of the sermon, the importance of the symbolism found in these things. We aren't so much interested in the details as as much as we are in the symbolism and the imagery that it conveys. Each of these things function either as a symbol or a type. Uh, excuse me, not either as. I made a, a clear point that that's that was not right. Uh, but but both as a symbol and a type. A symbol is something that is present significance, as we find in the Lord's Supper. A type is something that looks future or forward to the future. And uh, as the old covenant was a forward-looking. Uh, um, economy, uh, you could say uh, all of these things were both at the same time, though, as I just as I'm saying this, I realize the Lord's Supper is also both, isn't it? It's a symbol and a type because we do it until the Lord returns. We're looking forward to something greater. And so we find this really in both economies, don't we? But especially in the old economy, the symbol and the type, we, we will find that in each of these details. Uh, but look at the structure of what we have here. The first thing we see is the collection of offerings for the sanctuary in verses 1 through 7. And uh, a few comments are necessary to, to understand here what the Lord is saying. And I, I'm certainly not interested in going through the details of what they collected. But the first uh, is this. It is clear, as I just said, that Moses required the stuff to build and to furnish the tabernacle 
and clothed the priests and so forth. That's all the material we find them gathering here. Cloth and stones and precious metals and so forth. And uh, what they were doing, uh, or, or how, how they came into possession of these things, uh, if you remember, they plundered the Egyptians. They were greatly enriched as a result of that. They were certainly in a position to build a tabernacle, even one as, uh, as beautiful as this was to be. And so Moses was to collect out of the spoils of Egypt these many things. All of them, you notice, are precious and valuable. So it's noteworthy that the material for the furnishing, as my second comment, uh, was to come from the people. The people were to provide what was uh, needed. God would supply the design, but the people must supply the material as a free will offering. It was not imposed upon them on a tax, but the Lord was saying to them, in essence, as he later says in the New Covenant, as we find, for instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, that the Lord loves a cheerful giver and that it's a gracious thing. And so the Lord was, uh, in essence, saying that I want you to give to me cheerfully. And so we find, as a third comment, what uh, the truth of what Voss says that the covenant in the uh, in the uh, the post Sinai period functions as a two sided arrangement. Not at all in the sense that man and God uh, here stand on equal terms. You can't read Exodus and ever think that for a moment. God is uh, overwhelmingly the major figure in the covenant. But uh, but we do find that man has a part to play. He provides the materials. He builds the tabernacle. It is man who assumes the priesthood uh, and, and exercises the ministry of the priesthood in the tabernacle. So this is obviously a central feature of the Old Covenant. In fact, in speaking of the Old Covenant, in contrast to the New Covenant, one of the things that the writer of the Hebrews says, and he says this a few times in different ways in chapter 8 and then in chapter 9, and we read chapter 9, some of that, is that the tabernacle, this is an exact quote, was made with hands. It was constructed by human beings. Where, uh, where man's instrument, instrumentality uh, was obvious in that whole arrangement. Again, in constructing the tabernacle and then in performing the function of the priesthood. Man's contribution was, in that sense, highly significant. And there are several statements made to this effect in Hebrews as a point of contrast. And I, I, I do want to read uh, at least a few of them, although I, I, I confess I have the entire list uh, in my sermon notes. But let me just read a few of them. And some of them we already read uh, in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Now, this is the main point of things we are saying we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Notice the contrast. Man made the old covenant, but God, God made the eternal one, which is the basis of the new covenant. Verses four and five. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy of. And shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle uh, and so on. He actually quotes verse 40 of Exodus 25 next uh, chapter. Uh, chapter nine, verses one through five, which we read earlier is a description of Exodus 25 uh, verses nine through eleven. 
It was symbolic for uh, chapter nine is symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make perfect him who performed the uh, the service uh, in regard to the conscience. Uh, verse 11 is the, the, the verse I was looking for. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is not of this creation. And the last uh, last verse is verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Well, I think you get a pretty clear picture there. The human construction was uh, was of the essence of the old covenant tabernacle. And in some sense, you could say it was to the honor and the glory of man that he was enabled to play uh, so large a role in uh, in the construction, literally, of this covenant. While at the same time we recognize, though it was the glory and the honor of man, it also pointed to the weakness of that arrangement because everything that man makes is temporary and provisional and fading away. Man would construct the, the, the tabernacle and perform the services therein under the old covenant, but the, the better arrangement by far is found in the new covenant where God does all, where God assumes the priesthood in the person of Jesus Christ, where the, the tabernacle is his own construction solely. And so you notice by the time you get to the new covenant that it is much less a two-sided arrangement and much more the focus becomes what God has done for man. And all of those points of weakness uh, fade into oblivion. And you find a perfect and an eternal salvation in the priesthood of that covenant. But then as a next point in verses 8 and 9, we see general instructions regarding the building of the tabernacle. I do want to read those verses. Verses 8 and 9. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according uh, to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its furnishings, uh, of all its furnishings, just so, so you shall make it. So as the people were to supply the materials, God supplied the model or the design. And it was fascinating to read uh, the commentaries in their description of this, wondering aloud in their books, what was it Moses must have saw or seen rather on the mountain in the cloud? And I don't mean the extra things I was talking about earlier on that he didn't record. I mean what he did record. What was the thing that he saw that God was revealing to him that he was writing down? Did he behold heaven itself, the heavenly sanctuary, after which the tabernacle was patterned? Again, we're just wondering aloud. We don't know the answer to this. Or did God show him a picture and say, this is what I want you to construct. This is the pattern of the heavenly. Or did he show him a model? We don't know. There's no way to know for certain. The point is merely that God would supply the exact model to Moses. That's what he did on the mountain. The, the dimensions of the tabernacle, uh, the furnishings of the temple, uh, the materials, and so on. It was all to be done, as God said in verse, eight, uh, verse 9, exactly as the Lord prescribed. He says it again in verse 40. Nothing was to be left undone. Uh, nothing was to be added. And here was a place for God to dwell with the people. And we'll see what that means in a moment. But we do know that this was a copy of the heavenly. Whatever Moses saw, he was able to perceive something of the heavenly structure, the heavenly sanctuary. 
And what he was to construct or to oversee the construction of was patterned after the true tabernacle that Christ would later enter himself when he completed his sufferings. So the tabernacle, we know immediately, was not an end unto itself. It at once pointed to Israel's ongoing communion with God in grace, as all of its features will indicate. But more importantly, by its very inadequacy in form, it anticipated the greater heavenly reality from from its outset. And Moses surely must have known this as he beheld whatever it was that God revealed to him on the mountain. There was no way for this pattern to be disclosed to him without him seeing its true import as a model and as a type of the heavenly. I was fascinated, in fact, to discover, now I say this on the authority of the commentaries, I have not read this myself, but that the Jews themselves actually understood this. And perhaps that's still true, I don't know. Without a single word in Hebrews to instruct them, they understood just from this account, Exodus 24 and 25, that the earthly construction was patterned after the heavenly. And you really do get this sense, uh, that sense when you read this chapter and the chapter before. But there is one difficulty which we can't really uh, resolve, and that is this. And uh, the sense, the exact sense in which the earthly corresponds to the heavenly. That's where things become a little less clear. We know there was a correspondence Describing that correspondence is not so easy and not exactly possible given the amount of revelation that we have, which is not that much. All that we can affirm is that there was a correspondence. But as far as the structure of heaven, well, that isn't so easy to describe. Not even Hebrews gives us much direction in this regard. But we do find verse 40 quoted in in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5 where he speaks of it being a copy of the heavenly things. And so again, we know that there was a correspondence, which must have been obvious to Moses and even apparently to the Jews. Uh, But there are a few things that we can say about the heavenly sanctuary, which was mirrored or pictured in the earthly. If we think of what the tabernacle represented in general and in its essence, surely the greatest feature and and, and point of correspondence between the earthly and the heavenly was the fact that God dwelt there. It was the place of God's presence, as he says again in verse eight, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That is precisely what heaven is. And and the tabernacle was to represent that uh, visibly on earth. What it is precisely that gives heaven its glory and its splendor is not the structure of its dimensions. It's God. It's the presence of a God who is holy. That is what makes it a sanctuary. And next to that, from the standpoint of the covenant, is the fact that in the sanctuary of God, where the priests minister, God manifests his grace. That is true, equally true of the earthly and heavenly tabernacle. Which is what makes Uh, man's presence in the sanctuary of God possible, not only in the earthly, but also in the heavenly. And especially so there, where we are bid time and again in Hebrews to draw near into the very presence of God. It is a place where God manifests his grace, even though it is holy. That is the whole wonder of the sanctuary that is on display in the tabernacle. And so it's a sanctuary in that sense. A place that is holy because God dwells there and in which by his grace it is made possible for the sinner 
to commune with God. That's what the sanctuary represents. And some of the features we find in the tabernacle make this clear to us and show us how the earthly corresponds to the heavenly in those senses. And so we now turn to those. The furnishings of the tabernacle. And there were five which we find uh, in, in verses 10 through 39. Uh, which Moses was to construct according to the dimensions. The first was the Ark of the Testimony. The, the importance of the Ark is seen in what it contained, namely the tablets of stone upon which God wrote the Ten Commandments and which were, were called again uh, the tablets of testimony, making the Ark as it contained these things, the Ark of the testimony. And you shall put into the Ark the testimony which I will give you, verse 21, uh, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. So uh, there is the main significance of the ark. Uh, really, what we are considering uh, is the tablets. The importance of the ark was seen in the tablets. The tablets were called the testimony because the law of God, which the Lord wrote upon the stones and which Moses was to place in the ark, was a testimony to God's covenant with Israel through the law and the law's presence in the ark, the Lord was testifying to Israel constantly, both positively and negatively. Positively in terms of uh, uh, the positive path of blessing as outlined in the law, negatively as uh, found in the warnings. And, uh, and this law becomes the foundation in legal righteousness of the Lord's throne. And so we, we see placed upon it the second Furnishing, namely the mercy seat, which was to be placed on top of the ark in which was contained uh, the tablets of the law. And all of this was intentional. The purpose of the mercy seat, uh, verse 17, by the way, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. The purpose of the mercy seat was to be the throne of God. Where God would uh, meet with his people, where he would also rule again on the foundation of his law. And where they would have access to him in the person of the high priest. And there I will meet with you, he says, verse 22. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat and from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in the commandments to the children of Israel. He is seated on the mercy seat. And he is giving the people the law and, and they are able, the priests at least are able to minister there in the presence of God. And so God was ruling from his throne. This is his throne. Hence, again, the importance of the law and the commandments placed beneath it. But the real emphasis here about the throne of God is mercy. Indeed, uh, the word can be translated, I am told, again, uh, relying on the authority of the commentaries. They agreed on this point that the word mercy seat could actually be translated as propitiation. The mercy seat was a propitiation. It was, as Kylan Dillich say, an atoning covering, an atoning covering. You have the law and then you have an atoning covering. That is the imagery and the symbolism that the Lord is describing here as his throne. And thus the Lord met with his people in grace and upon his legal righteousness manifested in his commandments. There was a covering of grace. 
Its heavenly counterpart is therefore called in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16, which is the throne of God in the heavenly sanctuary, the throne of grace. Not surprisingly, the throne of God we discover, whether through the imagery here or description of uh, the heavenly sanctuary in Hebrews, is a place of grace. A place where the sinner is able to find mercy through the ministry of the priests. And all of this is dramatically played out uh, on the Day of Atonement that we'll later read of in Leviticus chapter 16, when the priest would minister there. Where the symbolism is realized and became to the people a means of grace. But much more so do we find here the typology that is found in its true antitype in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And his daily ministry at the throne of grace, where the believer, again, is bid to come and to draw near and to find grace to help in time of need. This is, again, the whole thrust of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is now ministering as our great high priest in the heavenly sanctuary at the throne of grace. And we are bid to come to him and meet with him there and to find grace. But what you see here in looking at uh, Exodus And its earthly counterpart is the symbolism that helps us to appreciate what it is God is doing exactly in the true and the heavenly and the eternal. But then on top of that was the cherubim is the third point, which were to surround the throne, as it were. It was a picture or a symbol of the angels attending to God's heavenly throne, which we find, for instance, in Psalm uh, 80, verse 1. Let me turn there and read that. Again, this is what is true of heaven and what is pictured in the tabernacle. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. He is appealing to God in heaven. He's appealing to God as he uh, is seated on the throne and surrounded uh, daily by his heavenly host of angels. And so the, the angels represent the rule of God, the fact that the angels attend to God and they attend to man at God's command. But at the same time, if you think of what the cherubim represent reading Exodus as uh, following the book of Genesis, it, it is not difficult at the same time to understand uh, another important connection that the angels or the cherubim. Do you remember when they appeared in, in Genesis chapter three? The cherubim here served as a reminder of man's fall into sin. And his ejection from the garden and his being barred reentry into the sanctuary of the garden by the presence of the angels and the flaming swords. Now that must have occurred to Israel here as she was told to place the cherubim at the very place she was to meet with God. And the place was called the sanctuary. And the question which the tabernacle and the ministry that occurred there was meant to answer in a very obvious way was this. How then would man, given the fall and the placement of the cherubim outside the sanctuary, how then would man be granted re-entry into the presence of God in his sanctuary? How would man come again, given his sin, into the presence of God? All of this uh, was answered dramatically through the rites and the ceremonies of the old covenant priesthood performed in the tabernacle uh, in the presence of God. Of the cherubim surrounding God. God was indicating to man upon his throne of mercy at once 
his alienation from God, and the means of reconciliation, whereby you might say the flaming swords of the cherubim were laid down, and man was enabled again to commune with God as one who was reconciled, though alienated through his sin. Though uh, in his newfound communion, you see, not in the absence of the cherubim who once terrified and threatened man, but in the absence of their hostility. For they ever live at God's command. And actually, we'll find them again uh, just in a little bit. The next thing we find is the table where the showbread was ever to be placed facing God. Thus, it was called, in fact, uh, it was called the showbread, uh, and, and, and the more little tra- literal translation is escaping me. I, I think it was called the bread of the face, I believe, because it was meant to face God. At any rate, we know it was called the showbread. It was, it was a presentation to God. It was something that, the, that was always to be placed upon the table as a picture now of communion and restored fellowship between God and the people. And throughout Scripture, it is the meal that represents communion. And again, as we are reminded what the tabernacle represents, we should always be quick to say a communion that has come through reconciliation and restoration. This is something that we lost and we forfeited, but which God has now offered to us again by his grace and through his priests. All of this powerful imagery and every bit of it is carried forward into the new covenant. For we find this again in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the exact same idea, in fact, where the Lord, through a sacred rite, is representing his communion with his people and causing them through the typology of the sacrament to look forward to the great feast uh, on the last day. But even then, you see, it's the idea of the feast, of the Lord communing with his people at the table. Communion through the meal. The great wedding feast of the Lamb. That's what it was called. That was escaping me for a moment. The great wedding feast of the Lamb for which the bridegroom makes herself ready. Revelation chapter 19. And again, Jesus refers to that and tells us to anticipate it in in instituting the Lord's Supper. And what you find as you look to the details here, and as you trace those details as types through the new covenant, and even into the new heavens and the new earth, you find in the showbread upon the table a powerful testimony once again of grace, because that is what God was manifesting in the tabernacle, and especially as a powerful anticipation of the grace of the new covenant. But the last thing that you find is the lampstand which was to give light to the tabernacle, which had no windows. And so it needed the light of the lamps. And as the bread was ever to appear upon the table, so the candlesticks were ever to be burning as a testimony of the continual unbroken fellowship between God and the people. Equally, what the light of Israel shined before the nations through the continual supply of the oil of grace and the power of the spirit poured out upon her priests and attending their service. And so we find in the new covenant, in the New Testament, that the church is later referred in Revelation as the seven lampstands. That imagery is once again carried forward into the new covenant, corresponding exactly to this point where the church is established and set up by the Lord in order to be light to the nations. As a testimony to his grace, his saving grace. It is a light which is meant to shine. That's what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 1 verse 20. 
And so we've only just begun to consider the tabernacle and its furnishings. But Voss's assertion, which we considered last time and which I restated this time, that you find symbolism and typology in all of these things is already confirmed. We don't only find its meaning just in considering the things themselves, but we keep finding these very categories popping up in the New Testament. Every, all five of them already we're easily able to find in the New Covenant. And so that is, uh, for us, certainly the real significance. How can we fail to appreciate things which we find then being used to describe the very nature of the salvation that Christ is offering to us in the new covenant. This is obviously something that is important for us Christians to grasp. The categories of grace. The structures of grace. And the more we grasp the purpose of these things. The light, the angels, the table, the throne. The more clearly we will grasp the salvation as, as it is offered to us in the new covenant. Through the person and priesthood of Jesus Christ. It is a salvation, as I just said, that involves the priesthood, namely that of a single priest, even Jesus Christ, the son of God. And his ministry is one that brings him through the trials and the pains of this world into the very sanctuary of God, the true and perfect and abiding sanctuary. There he finds the mercy seat, the throne of grace, and there he ministers daily by the eternal light of his own person. And we are able by his grace to commune with him there daily. There too we also find the angels attending him and the father. Not as hostile forces. If anything they look equally at us with wonder that we unlike they should be recipients of grace. And benefactors of Christ's priesthood. And so they adorn the throne with their glory. But they do not make it hostile to us. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 22. I wasn't sure what to make of this, but now I think I understand. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the holy Jerusalem or the heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels. Well, obviously, so if the angels were found at the throne of grace in the old covenant, ought we not ought we to expect them equally at the throne of grace in the new covenant. And so here too, he says, is part of the glory of the new covenant. It's the ministry and the myriad of angels that we find not at Mount Sinai or in the tabernacle, but in Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so you see, all of this is there in perfected form and heavenly glory. And there is nothing that so makes us appreciate these very truths as we find them. In the new covenant and in the priesthood and in the sanctuary, the priesthood of Jesus and the sanctuary of heaven. Nothing that so makes us appreciate these things as finding them by way of anticipation in the old covenant through the ministry of Moses as types and symbols of greater realities to come. And so we will continue to uh, consider them as we explore the coming chapters. But for now, uh, let us stand together and sing in praise to God as a hymn of response. Hymn number 42.